appreciate having Mark here this morning, and it's somehow uh, sort of appropriate because um, this next three messages out of Colossians, we're going to be dealing with freedom, uh, freedom that we have in Christ. And uh, freedom is uh, sort of, you know, written into our conscience, consciousness as, as Americans. Uh, uh, for many of us, the worst thing that we can imagine is having our freedoms stripped away from us. This is the, this is part of who we are, is part of how we are made up as a people, that, uh, that our, our history is one of people who uh, came to these shores largely seeking freedom, freedom from oppressive cultures where there was uh, war and famine and, and uh, other forms of oppression, oppressive governments that wanted to control every aspect of life, that limited opportunity and liberty and oppressive religion as well, religion that uh, decided, uh, religious leaders who decided that they knew best for everybody and tried to impose their views on the whole of society. And so you have all these people who end up here in America uh, early on in our history looking to, to discover liberty, li looking to find this freedom. And of course, that's a very rocky road. It's... Um, it's, it was not an easy journey. Uh, many who came here seeking religious freedom, once they got here, became very religiously intolerant. They, they formed their own little, little groups, and, and no other religious groups could, uh, could be around. Uh, there were many battles left to be fought, battles over what the role of the English throne would be in American life. And once that battle was fought, then there was the battle over how the colonies themselves would rule themselves. Many, of course, who celebrated their own personal liberty had no problem subjugating the Native Americans or black slaves. And so essentially one of the lessons that we can learn from our own history is that um, when you give men freedom, they often replicate the same patterns that led to their own oppression. That doesn't mean that we don't want people to have freedom. We certainly do. Uh, but Paul tells us that true freedom is going to come through honoring the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And that is the only true freedom that we will absolutely enjoy. And he comments on this pattern, this fact that, that sometimes when we find ourselves freed from the broken old things we still have a tendency to fall back into that captivity. He talks about our, uh, last week we talked quite a bit about being deceived by fine-sounding arguments, and this is how Paul says we, he's afraid that we'll fall back into captivity. He continues in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 8, he says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Here's one of the things that Paul has to say to us this morning, one of the things that in reality is a, is a little bit shocking because we don't often think this way, but a trap is always set to make to take your mind captive. Always. 
A wise man once said, it's not paranoia if they really are out to get you. And bad ideas are out to get us. Jesus himself says that broad is the road and broad is, the, is wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And it is a small gate and a narrow road that leads to life, says that in Matthew 7. Paul says Jesus is supreme in all things. He is the one perfect idea. But that one perfect idea is clouded by a billion really bad ideas. Bad ideas, he says, are built on human assumption and, and, and wisdom. He says uh, human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces, which is a kind of an interesting translation of a Greek word that basically means the basics. The basic principles. And so Paul says this is human understanding of the basic principles of life. And that's where we get this bad idea, this empty philosophy, this version of truth that's not quite right. In other words, if we begin with the supremacy of Jesus Christ, then we understand that everything originates in Christ and all truth flows from Christ. He is the origin. He's the beginning point. He's the source. But these empty philosophies are based on elemental forces, elemental principles, these basic things. In other words, we begin with the basic pieces, the things that we see around us, and essentially try to reverse engineer truth from what we encounter. So where Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1 that we're without excuse because when we look around at the creation, we can see the evidence of God. So we don't have an excuse for denying God. But what do we do with that evidence? We take those pieces that are part of his creation and, and we sort of mash them together in a different way to try to reverse engineer a solution to the problem. We actually come up with a solution that leaves God out of the equation. Kind of like when you're doing that jigsaw puzzle with all the leaves. And you get to that point where I'm just, I just want this to be done. This was going to be a, a, a one-hour project. We're on hour 17. And you get to where it's like, this, I want these pieces to fit, whether they do or not. Go get my hammer. These pieces are going together. And so we, we create this mashup from the pieces, and we reverse engineer our truth based on these basic elements. This is where it comes from. It's our human understanding of basic elements. Instead of coming from the source and just being truth that's given to us, it's a truth that we create out of whole cloth. And so for everything from the origin of the universe right down to the identity of us as individuals, we have created truth from these pieces and because the pieces come from the source, there's a little bit of truth in this empty philosophy that we create. But there's also a whole lot of deception that ties those pieces together. Paul says, you want to avoid this, you live your life in Christ. 
to guard against the bad ideas that want to kidnap your mind, kidnap your soul. He calls them hollow and deceptive philosophies. Philosophies because they're, they're a way of thinking and they sound like they might be wise, but they're really hollow. They don't, they don't have any basis. They are designed to deceive us. And we could spend weeks considering all the deceptive philosophies at work in our world today. We're just going to look at a handful this morning, some that I think are probably affecting your life on, a, on a, uh, a weekly basis, certainly, if not a daily basis, sometimes an hourly basis. But there are some deceptive philosophies that are very common, very prevalent in our culture right now. We need to be aware of them. And the first we kind of talked about last week, but I'll, I'll rephrase it this way. The first deceptive philosophy here is my feelings are my facts. Last week we talked at considerable length about how we use our personal experience to justify everything, to define what is true. We talked about the problem with using personal experience as a way of determining what is in fact righteous. Of course, one of the big problems there essentially is that whatever I'm comfortable with, I no longer consider a sin. Because I am basing righteousness on what makes sense to me. But it goes a lot further than that. Because in our culture, we have young people right down to grade school age, which is astonishing to me, uh, young people making devastating decisions about their identity, their personal identity, their sexual identity, their gender identity, based on what? Based on their feelings. I didn't know anything about sexuality when I was in grade school. And now I've got, got little, little kids making decisions that are going to affect their lives for a long, long time. This deception, this deceptive philosophy influences how we receive and interpret information. And we are a culture that has lots and lots of information. We're overwhelmed with information every day. We have information from government. We have information from media. We have information from social media. We have information from our friends. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Most of that information is complete garbage. The majority of it is just worthless. But we're making decisions about that information not based on objective standards, not based on whether or not it can be fully evaluated. We're making decisions based on how we feel about it. I got a, uh, uh, a post from a friend of mine this week on social media sharing a story that she read. It was such a good story. It was fantastic. And she agreed with the premises behind it, and frankly, so did I. I read it, and I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. That's kind of exciting. But something in the back of my mind said that's also unlikely. So I did a little research, and that never happened. I mean, I don't have to look very far. Uh, this story never happened. In fact, the guy wrote it as fiction, admitted he wrote it as fiction. Somebody else published it without his name on it, published it as something that really happened. Why do we turn around and share those things? Well, because if I agree with it, it feels like it's true, even if it's not. 
our world bathes us in fake stories, fake news, fake information. And we've kind of reached a point where, to some extent, it doesn't even matter. Sometimes you find out after the fact that something you were told wasn't true, but it doesn't matter because it felt true. And so we'll stick with it, even though objective evidence says it's bogus. Well, folks, we are more likely to be captivated by a believable lie than an unbelievable lie. Although today we seem to be captivated by a lot of pretty unbelievable lies, too. Another deceptive philosophy that, that you're going to hear uh, virtually every day right now is everyone agrees. Everybody agrees with this. And we're social creatures. We like to be in agreement with other people. We like to feel like we're, we're uh, united. We're simpatico with others. And so when we're told everybody is on board with this except for you, we feel like the odd man out. We don't like that. It's like that peer pressure that you knew back in high school. But the reality is it, it, does, it doesn't go away for us as adults. We still kind of experience that, maybe not in the same way. But we're still getting this message that, hey, everybody's doing it. You don't want to be left out of what everybody else is in on. Recently in our, in our news and in our culture, there's been this huge push to classify beliefs that people have held, millions of people have held for centuries, as somehow they've become radical. Simple beliefs that people, pe people have held for forever are now radical. So that if you, if you venture out into some cultural areas and you say, for instance, I think that a marriage is between one man and one woman, suddenly that's a radical idea. If you go out and you say, I think it's probably a bad idea to have men competing in women's sports, even if that man happens to feel like he's a woman, Somehow that became a radical idea overnight. There's an agenda behind that, of course, and the agenda is to make you feel like you're suddenly in the minority, that everybody agrees with this, and if you haven't come on board, you're the odd man out. You're the weirdo. You need to get with the program. It's the 21st century. Wake up and smell the coffee, right? We're supposed to come along. Well, the reality is a most hot-button social issues in this country, there is no majority. It's very rare even to have a 51% majority in favor of any new agenda. If you get a plurality, you're doing well. The truth is a lot of these hot-button issues are still in the minority. The vast majority of the American people are against them. But the intent is to make you feel like you're not. There's an even bigger breakdown in the logic behind this. Because the assumption is, if everybody agrees, then it must be true. Of course, the truth is, everybody could agree. 
if everybody except for me and Jesus agrees to something, me and Jesus will still be right. Because Jesus will still be right. A version of this that you're going to hear, have been hearing all year, and will continue to hear, is follow the science. We all need to follow the science. How much have we been beat over the head with how we need to follow the science? The culture around us basically has come to the conclusion that anyone that doesn't agree with my conclusion about an issue is not following the science. The tip-off here that there might be a problem is the word the. We say the science, we're assuming that science is this great monolithic structure that hands down decrees. The science, the entire scientific community is in agreement about everything that it considers. The science is a bastion of uniform wisdom. This science is not science. Science I like. Science is a way of pursuing knowledge by observation. The science, the science is a bludgeon that government and media uses. It is completely one-sided. If you try to look at the other side, consider the other side, consider any other possibility, consider any conflicting data, you are quickly shut down. And so much of it today is based on models. Everything's about models. These computer models, we, have, we put so much faith in technology. We believe technology is going to solve a lot of our problems. And so when we start quoting computer models, we say, the models say. The models are, this is almost the opposite of science. Science observes and takes things into consideration. A model is a computer program that I put my assumptions into, and guess what? Spits out the other side, the results that I was expecting, because there's no other option. And so we do this all the time, though. I'm creating, I'm creating the outcome I expect, and then I'm referring you back to my model as evidence. Nowhere, nowhere is this more prevalent than in the social sciences. And I come from a social sciences background. Nowhere is this more prevalent than in the social sciences. Because in the social sciences, what we do is we come up with a theory. We come up with a theory for how people interact. And there have been a lot of theories published in the last decade, theories about gender and theories about trans issues and queer theory and you name it. There's a theory for every kind of, uh, every kind of social group. We write that theory down, we get it published in a journal. There's no research, there's no experimentation, there's no observation, there's no objective standard. We just got it published in a journal. And then I go out and I tell you that it's true and I reference my journal article as evidence. Just one big circle. Follow the science, they say to us. And by the way, everyone agrees. All of this, perhaps, is tied to another very broken idea that change is progress. Progress. 
Now, we understand that virtually all progress requires some kind of change. Therefore, we reason, all change is somehow equal to progress. We are a culture that in a lot of ways worships change. We certainly worship youth. No offense, young people. We do love you. But as a culture, we've sort of reached this point where instead of seeking wisdom from those who've acquired it the hard way over the years, we think young people are going to have wisdom just spill out of them because they were born with it. There's a reason that we turn to youth uh, for the focus of the future of our culture is because our feelings are facts. And what do young people have a lot of? Feelings. A lot more feelings than wisdom to draw from because they just don't have the experience. And so we have this crazy notion that wisdom is just sort of inborn and these emotions, these feelings that we're all experiencing are going to tell us some truth about the universe that we could not observe. There's an indefensible lie at the core of all of this. And that is that no new idea could possibly be a bad idea. If I was to come to you this morning and say, I've really been thinking hard about this and I've decided I need to make some changes to my diet. You would probably assume that that was a good idea. Most of us need to make some changes to our diet one way or another. It sounds like a good idea. So I tell you, but the change I'm considering is I'm going to live on Pop-Tarts and Doritos and Twinkies. That's the change that I want to make. But change is good, right? Change is progress progressive. Well, of course not. Logically, we know that that can't be. That not all change is going to be positive. But we are surrounded today by an onslaught of really bad ideas whose only virtue is that they're new ideas. The flip side of this is also uh, a, a deceptive philosophy, kind of a problem for us. It's the way it's always been. No change could possibly con be considered progress because it was all good just the way that it was. We're particularly uh, taken in by this in a lot of church circles. The way it's always been is, uh, defines a lot of our functionality. But it's not true. It's not true that it has always been. So many of the things that we defend with this argument are not things that have always been. They may have been that way for years. They may have even been that way for decades, but they haven't been that way for centuries, certainly not for millennia. They haven't always been that way, and they haven't always been good. As, as, as I sort of, uh, all of my friends are, are getting old. Not me, of course, but all of my friends are getting old. And so one of the things I'm having to remind them of at this point in their life is that when we were younger, there were also lots of bad ideas They were there. 
To say that all the bad ideas exist in the future or all the bad ideas exist in the past, either way is a deceptive philosophy. Life just doesn't work that way. We have to be cautious in the church when we're defending our traditions about whether or not we're preserving the eternal truths of Scripture, those things that come from the creation on down, or whether we're just preserving the what, what has suited us during our lifetime. But folks, all of these deceptions, I think, I think are tied to this one, that people are basically good. Now, I understand where that comes from because uh, we all know people, at least some of them, and, and we all like people, at least some of them. And the people that we like do a lot of good, at least sometimes. And because they're good in our eyes, they're good people, therefore whatever ideas they have must be good as well. We're inclined to believe the things that we read, believe the things that we hear, because people probably wouldn't lie to us. And certainly my friends wouldn't lie to me. But let me ask you this this morning. We won't raise hands because this would get awkward. But let me just ask you, how many of you in the room bent the truth a little bit this week? How many of you used a, a word that you wouldn't use in mixed company? How, how many of you this week got angry about something that you weren't justified being angry about? How many of you looked at something on television or on your computer that you really didn't have any business looking at? How many of you acted selfishly? How many of you were unkind or rude to someone that probably needed kindness from you? How many of you put yourself first and others after that? See how awkward this could get really quickly. Because we are the people that think these things matter. We are the people that believe that this is important stuff, that, the, that, that moral character and virtue, that all these things are all worth cultivating and that they have eternal significance and that this is what God wants from us, goodness and righteousness. And in spite of that conviction, in spite of our desire to be those people, are we not still struggling to be those people? And they say, no, I think you're being a little unreasonable, Doug. I think yeah, that's, you're pushing it because nobody's perfect. This is our, our response to everything. Nobody's perfect. You think it's a little bit odd that our first line of defense for the goodness of people is the inability of all people to be good? Of course nobody's perfect. That's the point. The point is that people are basically terrible. People are deceived. Even when we mean to be good, we'll still do the wrong thing. And a lot of people that we know don't even mean to be good. 
A lot of people in our culture today have bought into another lie that says it's only sin if you get caught. People are pretty terrible. Your well-meaning friends will ensnare you in lies. Do you know why? Because they themselves have been deceived by empty philosophy. Not because they mean to hurt you, not because they dislike you or hate you, but because bad ideas are everywhere and they're so easy to adapt. I give you as an example myself. As I stand up here week after week trying to teach you the truth from God's Word, I am convicted about that. I am convicted that everything I say needs to be rooted in Scripture, that needs to come from His truth, that I can't just speak for myself. It's got to it's gotta be rooted in the truth of God. I try to earn your trust as someone who will tell you the truth. And for those of you that believe that I'll tell you the truth, I am humbled by your belief in me. But here's what I also know. Every false teacher that ever was depends on the same trust. Every false teacher wants to get people to trust them so they can begin to insert their lies without being noticed. And this is why I constantly tell you, You have to know your Scripture well enough to hold me accountable to Scripture because your trust in me is not good enough because I'm just as broken as everybody else. Paul says that the cure to all of this is to be rooted and built up in Christ. Now, there is a very prevalent and very false assumption in our culture that the opposite of following Jesus. If following Jesus is about learning this new set of rules and following this new set of rules all the time, and so the opposite of following Jesus is not having any rules, having uh, liberty and having control of my own life. This is a lie because we're either serving Christ or we're serving one of these broken, empty, hollow philosophies. Jesus is the source of life. And just as the body needs food and water and air to survive, the soul of man needs Jesus Christ to survive. To deny this is like telling the Creator, I don't need you anymore. I'm going to go find my own oxygen and my own water. Paul says you need to be rooted and built up. This is one of Paul's rather famous uh, mixed metaphors. Rooted like a tree, which is an organic metaphor. Built up like a building, which is an inorganic metaphor. What do these two have in common? What they have in common is that what's happening above ground is very much dependent on what's happening below ground. So you are rooted in Christ and you are founded in Christ. And above ground, you are growing like a healthy tree. And above ground, you're being built up like a beautiful temple. But Paul says, you do both in Christ. Do it all in Christ. Form your foundation in Christ. Build it up in Christ. Grow in Christ. Do it all 
in Christ. Test every idea against the person of Jesus Christ. You know, in a way, that's really what faith is. Faith is believing that Jesus is so supreme, so the captain of all truth, that I can test every idea against him, and he will reveal which ideas are lies. Because literally every idea is born out of a sack of philosophical assumptions. Get that? Every idea is born out of a set of philosophical assumptions. Which means every news story you read, every book that you read, every conversation that you're a part of, every show or every movie that you watch, all of them come from a philosophy. All of them come from a point of view. And it's either the truth of Jesus Christ or it is something hollow. There are a billion bad ideas all around us set to take us captive. And we passively embrace these bad ideas all of the time. There is one truly good, perfect idea, and that is Jesus Christ. And that one idea sets us free. Now, we would have to, Paul himself says, we would have to leave this world in order to avoid all of this deception. That's not what he counsels us to do. Essentially here, he says, we can invalidate these philosophies. We can deflate them of their power by recognizing them and confronting them with the truth of Jesus Christ. How does this idea compare to Jesus? He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Our nation, our town, our homes, our schools, and, and often our minds are just filled up with these pretentious ideas that stand against the knowledge of Christ. It's time for us to surrender not just our body to Christ for salvation, but our mind to Christ for transformation, to grow in knowledge so that we can recognize the lie, recognize the source of deception when we encounter these philosophies. And in the quest for truth, to ask, seek, and knock. Because life really does have a sacred cure. It's a cure that is often neglected in favor of lots of cheap imitations for the cure. But we have to search it out. We have to study it. We have to pray for it. And we have to pound on the door of the kingdom and demand entry. We must stop surrendering the sacred truth that we own in Jesus Christ to a world that will spit upon it. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 7, says, do not give dogs 
what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened.